Hey, I'm Gabriel Goldfeder. I'm a Jewish life consultant, a.k.a. rabbi. There's a story of a certain king who did not have any children, or specifically the Hebrew banim. He didn't have any sons. He went and took treatment from doctors such that his kingdom or his sovereignty wouldn't be taken over or flipped towards Zarim, towards someone else, towards a foreigner, towards someone who wasn't of his family. And his work with the doctors did not benefit him. It didn't work. And he decreed upon the Jews that they would pray for him. That he would have children. And the Jews, in turn, sought out and looked for a tzaddik, a righteous person, in order that that righteous person would pray and make it that the king would have children. Uvikshu umatsu tzaddik ganuz, they sought and they found a hidden tzaddik. Vamrulo shi palel banim. And they told him that he should pray or that he will have to pray such that the king will have kids. And he answered that he has no idea. He does not know at all. And they told the king. And the king sent his officer or his emissary, Acharav, after this hidden tzaddik man. And they brought this man to the king. And the king started by speaking to him betov, with good or kindly or gently or nicely. You know that the Jews are in my hand to do with them as I please. Therefore, I ask you, Betov, nicely or kindly, that you pray that I will have sons or children. And he promised him or assured him that he would have a child in that year. And he went to his place. This king is not the first story we've heard of people who do not have children. We think back to Avraham and Sarah before they had Yitzchak. We think of Rivka and Yitzchak before they had children, Rachel before she had children with Yaakov, Hannah before she gave birth to Shmuel. We don't use this phrase to refer to someone who is very young or just got married and doesn't yet have children, it always refers to someone who has been trying ostensibly to have children, someone who is of age, 
someone who perhaps ought to have had children by now and does not have children. So this gap is noticeable. We know why it's important for this king to have children more than it would be important to anyone to have children. This king is concerned that his kingdom, which ostensibly he has built and which likely has certain character and certain value that he thinks are important. And he's worried that upon his death, this kingdom will be flipped. It will become someone else's property or someone else's responsibility or someone else's sovereignty. And he doesn't want that. That could be a function of ego. He might well think that the kingdom that he has built is a fabulous kingdom and deserves to continue to exist the way it exists now simply because he built it. It could be that it's genuinely fabulous. It could be that there's something amazing, that he's built something really special that he wants to continue. He doesn't want someone else to take it over who might have other motives. Is he benevolent and he genuinely loves the people who constitute his kingdom and he wants the best for them? So he wants to be able to have a child whom he can raise with the values and priorities and knowledge that are so dear to him in hopes or with the assumption that his son or his child will then be able to provide for the kingdom and for the people within it in the same way that he has been able to provide? Perhaps. We don't know. Like many characters in Rabbi Nachman's stories, we don't know exactly what's going on. We're sort of dropped into the middle of a situation. What we do know here is that the king is concerned. He's not trying to have a child because he wants to have a child. He's having a child for the sake of his kingdom and perhaps for his legacy. And he goes to doctors. He goes to pursue medical treatment to address the fact that he's not having children. We don't know whether or not it is him who is unable to have children or the queen who is unable to have children. Like we saw with Abraham, for example, that when Abraham had, when Sarah encouraged Abraham or demanded that Abraham marry Hagar and Hagar quickly had a child, we saw from that that it was Sarah who was barren and not Abraham who was infertile. But here we don't know. He's gone to doctors. He's pursuing a biological or physiological or hormonal treatment for the fact that he has not had a child. It's probably a good idea to pursue the most literal solution to the problem, to not necessarily assume quite yet that this is some question of spirit, spirituality or destiny or soul or something deeper rather than it being a pure function of biology. It would make sense in the modern context for a person to pursue what seems to be the easiest treatment for a situation like this. Similarly, I would imagine that if a person experienced some kind of wound or some kind of illness, they wouldn't immediately necessarily go to a priest or a rabbi or the like. They would probably try to figure out what the cause is and figure out whether or not that thing could be addressed in some kind of direct and uh, obvious way. And if that didn't work, the person might then pursue uh, some other avenue or way to address the issue or understand it as something more psychosomatic than it seems to have been at the outset. But the first stop would certainly seem to be a direct medical addressing of this issue. Of course, in Rabbi Nachman's world, 
going to a doctor was considered to be a shameful thing. Rabbi Nachman was very against going to doctors to solve problems. There's a huge debate in the Breslov world about whether or not that was simply because doctors at that time, at the beginning of the 19th century, were awful, and going to a doctor was often more of a death sentence than not going to a doctor and praying, or whether Rabbi Nachman genuinely was trying to convey that um, no, all illnesses are really rooted in the levels above that are rooted in the levels of soul and spirit and are not rooted in the physical body and addressing those issues by means of the physical body was represented a real spiritual danger. Not clear. There are different schools about that. Generally speaking, many breast lovers, including myself in the modern day, go to doctors. And yet there are caveats that are certainly could be introduced into that conversation. But what we know is that the king took this, and it's not surprising that the king would go and try to figure out whether or not there's something wrong with his body or his wife's capacity to reproduce or the like. But it didn't work. So that has been eliminated, that sense that this is a direct physical cause situation, that this is purely a question of biology or physiology, has been eliminated. It is not that. So next stop, he decreed that the Jews would pray for him. Now that skips like five steps. It's kind of a wild thing to have tried A, and then when that didn't work, demand of people that they pray for you in order to solve that problem. I demand of you that you give me a ride in the movies today. Okay, like could you ask first? Is it possible that you might just even ask nicely? This idea that he has to gazar, they has to decree upon the Jews. What does he think is going to happen as a result of that? Does he think of... Uh, the Jewish people as not willing to help him unless he demands of them and makes a decree that they have to pray for him? What prevents him from asking nicely in that situation? And it's also worth noting that he seems to think of the Jewish people that are in his kingdom as um, like prayer machines, as it were, in a certain way, that he can simply decree upon them and that will solve this problem. If I decree on them that they will pray and then they will pray and that will do it. There's no gaps here. There's no volition of God. There's no quality of the prayers. Nothing of that matters here. I decree that the Jews will pray and that will mechanistically give me the result that I want, which is that my that the queen will become pregnant. By the way, just to put this into your thinking as we work our way through this story the reality that there are Jews in this story is relatively unique. Many of these stories that Rabbi Nachman told that are included in this volume, or really many of the stories that he told even beyond this volume, don't include Jews per se and don't include Jewish things per se. They seem to occur in some kind of archetypal realm that doesn't necessarily include Torah or Jews or even necessarily God or a perception of God or religion or religiosity or halacha, Jewish law. Many of them seem to take place in a world in which those issues and those words don't even come up. So it is already notable that he is referring to the Jewish people, and he demands that the Jews pray for him, that he will have kids. And these Jews, who have now been decreed upon, have to find a solution. And rather than pray, interestingly enough, they go and they look for a tzaddik. They look for a righteous person that is who is going to pray, and he's going to yif'ol, he's going to make it that the king will have kids. This again is a little bit of a surprising detail because what do they think prayer is? Do they think prayer is that mechanistic that the tzaddik just seems to merely to press a couple buttons and all of a sudden God will come along and give the tzaddik what the tzaddik demands or, and therefore what the Jews demand, which is what the king demands? Do they understand prayer as a relational experience or do they think of prayer as a mechanistic experience that will yield children automatically? 
So they go and they find a tzaddik. It's interesting that he's referred to as a tzaddik ganuz. He's referred to as a hidden tzaddik. Uh, we have this idea in our tradition that there are 36 hidden tzaddikim who are basically keeping the world afloat at all times. But part of what's essential about them is that they remain hidden. And so to have one be outed, as it were, or to have one out of themselves, as it were, is a little bit surprising. But they somehow found a hidden tzaddik. And they said to him to pray for the king, that the king will have kids. Again, surprising. Could you ask? Could you be nice? Could you be kind? Could you simply say, hey, what can we do here? Can you ask for advice? Can you ask and say, hey, Tzadik, this is what the, the the king said. Like, what do you think? How can we handle this? Like, maybe we could have had a different thing. But they demand of him. Everyone's demanding of everyone that they yield kids through prayer. It's pretty bold. And he said that he has no idea. He is not, this is not his thing. He doesn't understand how that works. He doesn't understand what's, what the implications of this might be. We don't know what it is that he doesn't know, but he doesn't know at all. This is totally foreign to him. This is not something that he's been keeping an eye on. He's not, this is not something that he's uh, prepared to address at that time. Uh, and he does not know. And so again, the Jews now, uh, they basically hand him over to the king by going and telling the king, because they perhaps are afraid because they've been decreed upon that they need to solve this problem and pray and make sure that the king has kids. And they don't know, obviously, which is why they go to find this tzaddik. So they probably shouldn't be surprised that the tzaddik doesn't know either how this is supposed to bring it about. But they go and they rat on him to the king. And they go and tell the king. And the king sends his guy to get the tzaddik and brings the tzaddik before the king. And then the king starts a uh, charm offensive, as it were. He tells the guy, the tzaddik, um, you know, listen... I don't want to like pull rank here. I don't want to like be heavy handed, but you do know, of course, that I can do whatever it is I want with the Jews. You guys are in my hands. I could totally make you suffer if I want to. Now, I'm not doing that. I'm not threatening you, even though I just completely threatened you. I'm not threatening. I'm asking you nicely. Could you please pray for me? Now, again, this might be very genuinely sincere. It might literally actually be that the king is actually being sincere. He's not wanting to resort to that kind of heavy handedness. He is opening up a separate possibility in which he's going to invite or, you know, kind of request of this tzaddik that the tzaddik is going to pray uh, for the king that the king will have kids but he does want the tzaddik to know that the tzaddik doesn't really have any choice in the matter and the tzaddik has to pray uh, so he does say to him you know listen I'm being nice to you here but you know I could do whatever I want with these Jews therefore I'm asking you nicely to please pray for me that I will have kids not that the queen will have kids but that I will have kids and the man promised him that he would have a child in that year and he went away. How does he know? How is he able to promise this? Is this a prophecy of the future? Is he making it happen? Is he poel? Is he doing the very exact thing that the Jews asked him to do, to make it happen, to make it so that the king will have kids? We don't know. But he makes a promise that the kid will have a valad. Again, the kid will have a child. We do not know yet what the gender of this child will be. And he goes on his way. Thus, we finish with the first part of the story there's so much to talk about here, so many elements that are worth discussing, so much guidance for us. Again, these stories designed to wake us up, to alert us to ways that we've fallen asleep. Bezat Hashem will be able to explore this story, find the depths, find the teachings, find the light, find our faces, find ourselves, find the ways that Rabbi Nachman's using this story as a way to get our attention and bring us towards a next level, bring us towards the next step of our journey of the 42-letter named journey, Bezar Hashem.